0: Uh, welcome this is the inaugural episode of at the canton uh, this is two two Chicano guys watching some films and then talking about and then talking about them Uh, I'm Aztec Parrot a.k.a. Parrot, and we also have with us who? Uh,
1: we have Pancho Cardona, also known as Pinchy Pancho Cardona, uh, here to talk about movies. Yeah, and you, you have to
0: say both of your names.
1: like That's your like, first name. <laughs> like, like, Maria
0: Candelaria. You just can't call her Maria. You have to call her Maria Candelaria. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, this is this is um, since this is our first show. We've decided to start in the month of March, in March being a uh, recognition of International Women's Month. And so, um, what we're going to do is we're going we're going to go over three films uh, that deal with uh, women, either made by women or about women. Now, the way that we choose our our, our films is that we always start with a new a new film, uh, which for our definition, since we're old dudes, um, movies that were made within last three years. And then we go to the mature film, which is movies that were made in the last uh, 20 years. So it goes all the way back to 2001. And then we do a classic film, which is uh, over 20 years. So anything over 20 years. So the three films that we're gonna be talking about today, um, the first one uh, I think we're gonna talk about is a new film, which is Las Sandinistas, which is a documentary that came out in 2018. And then for our mature film, we're gonna deal with the film Mosquete y Mari, uh, which came out in uh, 2013, I believe. And then for our classic film, we're gonna go with the Mexican classic, Maria Candelaria, which is, um, and I think because of that, I think uh, Pancho, Pancho was
1: like Pancho Cardona, peachy Pancho Cardona. I just wanted to add to the, the, the three films that we're gonna be reviewing today actually have strong ties to the San Francisco Bay Area. So we'll bring them up as they go along, but um, there's connections in all three, which I didn't know about till we watched. So, I mean, I'll bring them up. We'll bring them up when when we get to them. But for for those of you from the San Francisco Bay Area, keep in tune because you're going to find out some things that perhaps you didn't know before. Wow. Well, you know, there is some stuff that I knew about San Francisco,
0: but for all three, there's going to be a learning experience involved with that. So let's uh, let's let's start off with the first film that I'll introduce, and this one is a film that was made in. Uh, 2018 and it, it uh, premiered at the South by Southwest festival and it was directed by uh, Jenny Murray who was a, uh, who won the actual uh, special jury prize for new directors and this is a documentary about the women's stories of the the Nicaraguan Revolution at Sandinistas and um, that uh, hurt. That started in the '60s and '70s, and, and eventually, you know, the struggle can, still continues in, in Nicaragua. But inside this uh, documentary is they, they go over the story of really this is a story of uh, Dora Maria Diaz, and she was a, uh, a soldier inside the Sandinista uh, Revolution. But when she became part of the Sandinistas, she worked her way up to rank all the way to general, and she actually, you know, was a very successful uh, military strategist and, and and general and organizer even to this day. Um, yet she never appears; her name never appears in any official uh, capacity as far as the Sandinistas when they they talk about the recognition of the the revolution. Um. Also, they they. They talked to two uh, female uh, participants in, that, were, that were inside the Sandinistas uh, army. And that was uh, the poet Daisy Fuentes who has a San Francisco connection and Gioconda Ballay, who who is a uh, author. Uh, in particular, her, her book, The Country Under My Skin, a, a memoir of love and war gives a real personal account of that struggle and that revolutionary action and then the, the involvement of women. And then we, we get to very two important soldiers, but who are also completely forgot um, both Claudia and Sophia. And so this is uh, this documentary uses archival footage along with the interviews to kind of show not only the history of, of this of this tremendous revolution that happened in seventy nine but also a very detailed account of how the women played a very ex- extremely important part of this uh, uprising organization and revolution um I, I think at one point they they state that 25 uh, percent of the women were were made up uh made up the uh resistant force of so the part of the sandinistas the, the actual fighters 25 percent of them were, were women so um i thought you know I, I love the documentary because I was, I was a Latin American history. I had that as one of my minors. And so at that time, my consciousness was developed by the, the Sandinista movement uh, because of the Contras, the, the, the existence of the Contras. I, I started studying what was going on in Nicaragua and I found out about it. And of course, you know, I knew about uh, Dora Maria Tejas, about General Dora Maria and also knew you know about daisy fuentes and 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 bella but the other you know the other stories and a, a really overall look at at women's involvement in in this revolution i'd never really came across it it was i understood that the, that there was women's issues within that struggle but this one clearly clearly lays it out and shows um how they were treated not only as citizens but also as soldiers and 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 uh is in the struggle. what you what do you think about the film?
1: Yeah, I think I mean, well, first of all, I think you meant Daisy Zamora and not Daisy Fuentes. Oh, <laughs> oh I'm, my I'm God.
0: still I'm still in love with Daisy Fuentes and <laughs> Daisy Zamora. Okay.
1: But it was great to see, you know, um us who were like in San Francisco in the nineties to see like a Daisy Zamora up there, like I'm not sure if you've ever read with her, but I know she was, she was doing readings in the 90s in San Francisco. She was teaching at a State, and it was great to see uh, Gioconda Belli, who, who also did readings. I was working at Modern Times at these times and both of them came to read at Modern Times while I was there. So it was very good to see uh, both of them part of this. And I knew that both of them had been part of uh, the Sandinista movement in the in the 70s and 80s, but, I didn't know to what extent to like the ranking they were very well up there and I think what this um, uh, documentary showed was that um, uh, just how involved they were and just how involved women in general were I mean I'm not I'm no great historian but I know that anytime that you have women on the front lines um, it's very rare, especially in Latin America. I, I don't know if it's, it's actually happened before to see it to that level. I think Cuba is the other one. And Mexico. Uh, yeah, Cuba, the solo Soledaderas in, the, in Mexico. So, I mean, the 20th century, yeah, you're right. I mean, but at the same time too, we can count them on, on our hands, the instances in which it happened. So it doesn't happen that often. Um, secondly, the, the other thing that I wanted to bring up was um, about the Sandinista movement. I think our our generation, um, you know, if you were in the eighties studying uh, Latin American studies, this was kind of like your introduction to kind of revolutionary politics. This was your access point, was studying the the Sandinistas um, fight against Samosa and the dictatorship against uh, US hegemony in Latin America. This was our crash course into learning about everything else. So, I mean, the eighties was such a hot topic. Everyone wanted to know Nicaragua, everyone in terms of internationalism wanted to be there. I know we know people in the mission who actually went there, other poets, right? um, Who were going there and it was great to see that um, other people like Garcia Marquez is mentioned as, as going to Nicaragua at this time. Eduardo Galeanos, especially writing it, they, they mentioned a, a prose piece that he wrote. So, I mean, just the whole 80s was a hot day. The whole 70s, um, you know, such an important topic. And to kind of see that history. Uh, with that said, I mean, knowing knowing what we know about the Sandinistas and what was happening, and knowing what we know about now and which direction it's gone in, I have to tell you, I was very apprehensive. I just didn't want a fluff piece, um, because I can understand wanting to to hear that. So my initial impulse um, when I saw this, I thought, okay, great, this is this is about women, but about women how they um, told the story of the Satyagraha movement because it's. It's, it's very linear. It starts from the seventies, goes into the eighties, but it's told through the lens of these women who, for all practical purposes, are on a panel, talking about the history. And I thought, okay, that's good. I mean, that hasn't been done, and and talking about just the role of women, I thought it was very important to give that in the way they've been treated. So um, at the same time, too. I kind of felt like it was going into a, uh, a puff piece about the way the Sandinistas were, were going, especially, like I said before, with where they're at now in terms of the way um, Ortega has consolidated power in Nicaragua. And so, I mean, those are I mean, my initial impressions. I mean, we'll get to the last third of the documentary, but you know, what was your initial impulse as you turned it on and, and as you're watching this unfurl? Well,
0: I think in, in general, I mean I because of because of the awareness that I, I received about uh Latin American revolutions and the history of it, really first encountering that, like as you said, in in, in Nicaragua with the Sandinistas, it was I always feel very emotional when it comes to to, to to stories about the the Nicaraguan revolution, about the Sandinistas, because I know the current state and and Ortega is not, he did a complete about face. And now like the, the Sandinista party, political party is in cahoots with the international markets. I mean, Ortega always uses that as his excuses, like how can we get our country into you know international trade to help us out as a people but he's made a lot of bad decisions as far as uh, repressive actions and, and really putting profits before people. So with that, knowing that the Sandinista now is almost like a, is like a a curse word now or, or it has a really bad mojo attached to it. I always feel sad about that. So when I went into this, I was like, okay, you know, how are they, I, I, I kind of knew how they were going to portray Ortega and they don't spend a lot of time really, you know, talking about Ortega and stuff like that, but you kind of, you kind of get it. Yeah. I mean, in fact, if, if anything, Ortega is almost absent. The, the presence of Ortega is absent in this, in the, the development of the, of the story until he gets elected president. And then once he's yeah. elected president, then, you know, then his presence, you know, emerges. But when, as you know, in the eighties, when we're looking at Sandinistas in Nicaragua, it's all about Daniel Ortega as this like great socialist, you know, the great mind, the great socialist mind, you know, the resurrection of the socialist mind, the socialist man, like you know Che Guevara had had defined. But uh, you know, and then once that he is not elected, he doesn't get re-elected, then basically the Contra movement's over. There's no reason for the Contras to, to exist. But then he comes back into power you know, much later, like in the, the late 90s or maybe early 2000s, I think it is.
1: I think it's but, 2006,
0: or remember. Yeah, 2000s yeah, that sounds about right. So, I mean, he has this marked absence from it you know, for almost 20 years, but then comes back into, into power. So, yeah, it's, that's what I, I kind of went in there thinking, okay, you know, what are they going to be talking about? But then for me, this, you know, the story, I mean, the story was, you know, the, these women's involvement at every level. I mean, the, the, the one thing that, that was most striking was, of course, the issue of, of equality, which this whole thing starts off with, with Dona Maria as, you know, walking across her property or wherever she's staying at. I don't, I don't know if she's a property owner, but yeah. she's talking about equality. And yeah. she's also currently, you know, doing all this stuff, you know, toward toward women's equality. Then Daisy, you know, Daisy Zamora's is talking about the fight, fight within the revolution, inside the revolution, and how all these gender roles, even though they, they're giving mouth service, to the, the role of women in Nicaraguan society, when women are involved in the military portion of it, they get they get sent all the, the the traditional outdated women's duties. Like, oh, you can do the cooking or you can do the cleaning or, you know, do whatever. But once that they find themselves actually inside the battlefield, it's, it's a different story. Um, I think Che Guevara once said, women fight harder because they're, they're fighting for two lives and not just one i mean them themselves and the child that they can produce so they they're much much more efficient much more uh, strategic and uh also you know braver uh, mm-hmm. soldiers in, in the battlefield so that you know that's one of the things that, that that i got out of it
1: yeah i, I mean i'm talking about the way in the i really liked how um, Dora um, starts off, I mean, it, it kind of begins and ends with her, but she introduces this uh, reoccurring motif of um, about what history is. I think it's something to the effect: it's what we choose to remember and what we choose to erase, right? It's, it's constantly under this process of rewriting and erasure that are happening. And I think that's kind of what's happened. I mean, if you look for uh, in terms of uh, thinking about uh, Nicaragua. That's that's what's happened right in the past 30 years. I can't believe it's 40 years because it started the ni- early nineteen seventy. No, no. I think we're talking 50 years. We're talking 1970. We're, we're already pushing at 50 years of this struggle. And also just thinking about uh, in terms of it's not like these women issues weren't being brought up in, within the revolution. They, I mean, they were being pushed, but they were getting pushed back by, by um, the pa- the patriarchs saying, well, we're fighting for everybody. You know, it's all lives matter. It sounded like very much like, yeah, 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 we hear you, but all lives matter. You know, everyone's going to be liberated, but they haven't really, didn't really think about what the roles, you know, what liberation meant in terms of roles of women and men and whether or not, it was just, you know, liberation for women to be wives without, you know, uh, without a heel in the back of their neck, or what did it mean, you know? So I think these women were constantly wondering, what is it going to mean for us after? What are we going to go back to be doing? We understand that society is going to go back, but our are, our are, are our lives as women are going to change. I I really like the way that was pushed forward and the way that that was chosen to think about. Uh, why it's important to view this revolution through the
0: eyes of women. I mean, I, th- I think it's a it's a well well uh, made documentary. Yeah, I, I still think it was a little short. Of course, you can't you know give a comprehensive history of the women's you know struggle inside this you know movement in ninety minutes. But I mean, they they do a, you know a good job, um, especially as the first time a documentary maker as Jenny Murray uh, is. Mm-hmm. She's an American woman from Chicago. Yeah, this is her first her first uh, thing, and it's it was a very celebrated. I mean, it got carried over to PBS and um but you know another thing that I want to do is, is that the music selection. I mean, that was one of the fucking that was one of the most fucking rockiness fucking soundtracks yeah. that I've heard for a documentary. <laughs> I mean, there was like a lot of jams. I was just kind of like, damn, that's a jam, that's a jam, that's a jam. So but, but which also reminds me of like, you know, that uh Nicaraguan people they love music I mean you turn music on with them I mean it's it's a party and and they definitely know how to party so um
1: yeah in terms of like what you're touching on the the I mean as a filmmaking aspect of it what was pretty amazing was watching um her the the documentor finding footage of these um women as younger, of Daisy and Gioconda and Dora, I was just amazed about the amount of footage that they had, especially footage about uh, some of the sites that uh, they were talking about that they were trying to, that they were fighting for, sites of Lyon, sites of uh, Managua, um, and just, I mean, they must have just, and the way they eased that into the narrative to demonstrate it as examples of the narrative was going on. I thought it was really well done in that like you just had these women talking about um invading Leon when Dora's talking about, you know, uh, being tasked with taking control of Leon and then they just have pictures of, of this happening. And I was I was like, that's really good craft and really good So of documentors are supposed to do. So I was really happy about seeing that kind of stuff. Um well, this leads us to the to our next film,
0: which we're gonna do our mature film, and that is uh, Mosquita y Mari. Why don't you help
1: set that up, Pinchy Pancho Cardona? Okay. Uh, Mosquita y Mari by Aurora Guerrero. And here's our another Bay Area connection was that she's from actually from San Francisco's Mission District. So um, she went to school in UC Berkeley, so she has these strong Bay Area ties. Uh, she also, um, helped was worked on Real Women Have Curves. And if you look at the style of Real Women Have Curves or even the style of Hentified where she directed a couple of episodes for Hentified, the, the kind of all these embedded narratives that take place in, in urban barrios especially in Los Angeles. And I just, I was, I was talking to my sister last night about it. I go, she just has a pulse for them, like thinking about them um, and the people and the kind of people that we find on this. And I think um, Mosquita y Mari is a good example of it. It was filmed, I think, uh, 2011, did the film circuits in 2012 and 2013. Um, And it's about uh, two young Chicanas in Huntington Beach who are processing their emotions about growing up and their obligations that they have.
0: Huntington Park, which is completely uh, different than Huntington Beach. <laughs>
1: okay, Huntington Park—that's my lack of of LA uh, geography. Um, but I'll, I'll I'll start off on that terms of geography. I'll jump just just jump right into the movie. I think one of the things that was very interesting was, um, um, I think the film was dedicated to Sheree Sherry Was that correct? Like she and
0: Gloria some... Dua, Yes, the writing and the writings. Yes.
1: Yeah, and I thought that was perfect because I mean, just thinking about loving in the war years and thinking about uh, Sheree Moraga navigating these spaces that she doesn't know how to process yet that she has these structures that are very much, she knows how, to, how they're embedded on her but she doesn't know how to be herself, uh, a queer Latina within these spaces. So she's, I mean, loving in the warriors, that's all about the process of finding space of navigating space of learning what these spaces are. So when, you know, when we first see that um, Mosquita come in and she's, or Yolanda Yoli, I mean, she takes on these different roles in it, different spaces that she navigates. And so I just thought, you know, right off the bat, this is gonna be like a special movie, like thinking about how do we process someone like Shari Morag and how it plays out on film. So. I was just really blown away in that aspect. And I, I took it from there and I, and I kind of ran with it. I mean, I could bring up other things later, but um, I'll give you a chance to talk about your first impressions. Yeah, well, I actually,
0: I wanna talk just a little bit about the, the history of the film. And and one of the things that, that kind of brought it on into the public uh, consciousness was that this was really one of the first uh, Chicana Chicano projects that was featured on Kickstarter and through their work especially organizing the community they were they were able to to generate enough funds to help finish the film along with all the grants that they had received and, and you know do all this stuff so there was a lot of interest that going into this film and they did a remarkable job as far as uh, building community around it and you know the 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 the, both the gay and lesbian community they have a a, a big tradition and strong tradition of uh helping finance uh, movements or projects that they feel are going to be beneficial for their community especially the understanding of their community and i think this this movie is is right on and the exact it's it just nails it perfectly it targets these issues that exist with the the homophobia and and the, the, the these alternative lifestyles that that uh, are a reality within our community, and they're getting addressed here, and they're just kind of like, and they're making it a, a very uh, easily palatable and and digestible um, uh, bites. Gennaro, as a, as a filmmaker, is also. She's not. She's she's not only. Uh, intelligent, but she's also—I mean—she uses that intelligence in her her movie, and she does it in a very subtle way. Um, I'd be honest; I mean, the the this is the first time I saw the film uh, because it, in twenty thirteen, um, things just like changed for me. I think I moved to New York, so when the film was made available to the public, they were they weren't showing it much in, in the East Coast, so I never really got a chance to see it. But what what had happened was that. Like on the opening scene, the very opening scene. If you know Huntington Park, and Huntington Park is the inland, it's probably like about fifteen miles from the the coast, and it's about twenty miles, twenty-five miles from Huntington Beach, but predominantly you know Latino city. But if you if you look at what the opening scene is, you see two planes leaving over this kind of like smog-filled sunset, you know, sky, and you see the power lines. But if you know Huntington Park and if you see planes flying like that those those planes are leaving Long Beach and they're heading uh, west so for me that was as soon as I saw that I was like, oh this is you know these characters these two characters are going to be leaving what leaving behind whatever their norm is their lifestyle is so once I saw that I was like oh my god you know I mean, she's really digging into some of these, you know, these these metaphors and, and she's using it to to help start her narrative. And it, it's pretty consistent throughout throughout the 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 film, the use of these little small tropes and everything to, to help tell the stories. Something that you think would would, you know, would doesn't make much sense, but it makes all the sense. Like for example, I mean, and one of the, the the scenes where the, the characters recognize that each other exists they're both walking to school but they're on both sides of the street so but eventually when they strike up a friendship and they they find their little secret hideout they're walking down the tracks together side by side onto a track so just like little tropes like that it shows it shows that the filmmaker really does care about you know how how to carry that story and how to, to to punch it up to make it feel good for the for the viewer and you know kind of help us out with that i mean so i mean and the movie is filled with stuff like that so i really do appreciate um all the work that was
1: done as far as the, the storytelling part and those are all a uh, geographical uh um jump geoma- geom that's all geometry right like the parallel lines the way they move the way they where, where they intersect the way they bisect and you know and that's what I'm saying there's there's a whole motif of geometry going on in all these relations in in the relationships within it kind of the the expectations of where they should be right the family the families have expectations of of who they're going to be sneaking off with of who they're seeing but they don't really see what's the real movements that are happening they just see the structures right you have to be with a boy who's a boy you're spending too much time with the boy, but it's never it's never the boy. It's it's always um, it's either it's it's Mari or um, in terms of um, uh, in, in terms of it's either Mosquita, right? The expectations put on Mosquita to be who she should be with, the expectations of where the where Mahdi should be living. She should be going to school, not working, but yet in reality, her it necessitates necessitates her bringing in fun. So I just, you know, again, it's just a, a geometry of emotions that are going on, which I really liked a lot.
0: Yeah, the, the, um, the, the filmmaker does it, like I said, she, she, she practices a craft that is, is very effective. That, I also have to be honest too, the first time I saw it, it was like, it was getting late in the evening, very late and I was watching it in my bed. And then next thing you know, boom, I'm asleep. But the the some of the last memories that I have when I was you know really paying attention to the film and it was very early I mean really early in the film because I saw the quality of acting and these are these are newcomers you know they're they're not you know accomplished actors but the first one of the first things I got was like oh this is probably going to be one of those like after after school specials you know that you know, those movies that I grew up with back in the 70s they'd always have like you know these movies out were geared toward young folks and you know they had a message with them and stuff like that, but they weren't very well acted and are very well made. But on this case, you know, it's a very well-made film. But the acting it, itself, there's a lot to desire on there, but the story is so strong that you kind of just kind of like ignore after a while. You just kind of ignore that because the story is really what's carrying it. And it's the story of how these two met. But then the story of, of, of them inside school and how they're, they're interacting with their other students or their friends, how they break away, how they come together, how they you know kind of like uh, uh, struggle together, m- not only academically, but uh, Masquita, she land, she becomes like the, uh, the tutor for Mari and kind of like whose, whose skills aren't really strong but you know, eventually, you know, she's helping build that skill. That's part of her friendship. So there's like, you know, there's that sisterhood that's going on, and and because of that, I think both characters are, you know, are really, you know, like I said, the story is what's carrying them. It's not their performances that are carrying them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to like keep harping on it, but it is I like this ability to kind of encompass encompass each other's space, right? To be able to adapt each other, becoming Mari, becoming um, literate in geometry, and Mosquita uh, being able to, um, you know, ha- get a little toughness, right? Because there's that end scene where she gets out of the car and she fights and she gives a pushback, and that's that's and she says the very words like, um, "I don't care" or something like that. That's I, don't fuck. Fuck. Yeah, I don't give a fuck. Yeah, I don't fuck. give a fuck, and that's the very same words that Mari used at the beginning of the film where she you know, where she's first confronted with these girls and she says, I don't give a fuck. So, I mean, she's able to take, they're able to take on each other's spaces and, and make them uniquely their own. So I thought I thought that was very good, the way that goes on. And also the scene with her putting on the cowboy hat and looking in that mirror and looking at spaces of what I can be, I thought was very fantastic. I love that scene in front of the mirror, um, just with the cowboy hat like earphones and who is she you know she has Maddie's headphones she has a cowboy hat and she's dancing i just i loved it in terms of uh, the acting you know the acting that's something to desire but there's some things i mean i, I gotta say when you start you i'm not sure if these were non-actors at the time I'm, I'm pretty sure they're actors right now because i looked up their their roles and they've done stuff after this but and it feels very much like non-actors. Most of all the cast seems like non-actors, but it brings a level of, uh, in some instances, I, I understand your frustrations like, mm, they just don't have that range to do things, but they do have a certain rawness in certain points, especially with Mari, you know, the way she kind of has that that toughness, that street attitude, which I don't think a lot of trained actors could nail. So, I mean, there's moments where it just fits into the streets. But I understand that other frustration too, where like, you're just not getting the range that, that certain trained actors are capable of going. So yeah.
0: And, you know, the, the way that, um, the way that, that Huntington Park is portrayed too, because Huntington Park mm-hmm. becomes a character. I mean, it's not necessarily Huntington Park. It's more like the Barrio. The body becomes a character inside, inside the, um, the, the story. And the way that the filmmaker treats it, it, um, it is, it's, it's an adventure. It's like, you know, in Huntington Park, everything's like, you know, the main drag is Pacific, Pacific, I think it's Pacific Avenue. But, you know, most of, a, a lot of the, the, the scenes occurred right there on that, on that main drag. And the thing is, is that um, it's both, uh, and it's both an area to make a living so it has like a good connotation to it, but it's also played a play to shop. So it's like survival. know, if you can go, it's like mission street, you go, you can go down there and you get your stuff that you need to survive your food or whatever, clothing or whatever, but it also has a, a dangerous element to it. And so it, you know, the, 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 the role of the radio is kind of like, it's almost paralleling, especially Mosquita's development as a character, you know, where she's, you know, all, gr- all great intentions when those first businesses opened up. I mean, they probably opened up with great fanfare and relief, but then eventually, you know, the character, the characteristic of the city of the barrio, you know, lends its flavor to that to that street, and so we we see that we see that character, you know, being used inside the inside the movie, and, and everything that is really confrontational happens off the street. You know, when, when Mahdi's friends are, they're out smoking weed and, you know, blah, 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 you know, just hanging out being you know teenagers, they're doing that off the street. You know, they're doing that kind of like, you know, they're, you can see in the background that they're going through like, you know, uh, residential areas or whatever. So it's, you know, they're, they're not on Pacific. But, you know, Mahdi eventually gets a job on Pacific, passing out flyers and then, you know, it's wayward stuff happens from that and, Mosquito spotted hanging out on on Pacific with her friends. And then she gets, you know, everyone just like all the cheese may about her just starts blowing up because, you know, this, you know these little small incidents is very innocent stuff that she's doing. But that damn store owner, man, he's he's bringing us shit up man. he's like, you know, he's stirring the pot up. And so, yeah, and I didn't appreciate that from him. But I appreciated, you know, from this the, the filmmaker as far as to tell the story. Because it's it's a you know it's it's a motif that is is very real, especially inside the the bodegas or inside the yeah. you know, the, the little vadio canasarias or whatever the marquetas. It's you know those people are, are powerful. They're like they're leaders, they're like community leaders. They're the eyes and the ears of the community. Yeah, yeah. And so in, in that, you know, there is a lot of like familiarity that is brought to the to the story because like i said the, the 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 audio becomes this you know character in itself and it's something that isn't really portrayed in like you know in in american like white american type of of media culture except maybe sam the butcher who was bringing alice the meat that's like the that's the only, that's the only place that you know that we see
1: like you know, Exactly.
0: <laughs> 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 so yeah. Absolutely.
1: What else? What else can we say about about Mosquito Imari? I I really liked it a lot. Um, yeah, I mean the the the, the production. Um, you can see somebody with a lot of promise in it, and it did have that after after school to it only in the beginning though. After yeah. after we got into the story, I completely forgot about it and was totally engaged. Yeah. Um. Also,
0: too, is that the, this film is like, for example, I mean, there's language. There's some. There's not a lot of like foul language, in, but there is some language in it. Um, but also, there's no nudity. Uh, there's uh sexual situations, but like I said, there's no nudity and nothing really. You know, nothing very explicit.
1: Um, that you know, you so it, it can be something that uh, uh, teenagers. Well, can well watch. the ending is quite has a strong explicit innuendo of what happened. Yeah, but uh, which kind of bothered me a little bit. But I'm not sure if it if it was necessary. But I'm not sure if it's. I mean, my own prudishness is is being challenged. But I was just it left me like it really came from left field on that one. So yeah.
0: So I, I like I said, I, I think this is a film that you know within a selected audience, I mean, I think for for uh, kids 13, this is like a PG 13 film. Yeah, I think that some of the, the the things will be lost for kids younger than that, but kids who are exploring not only their sexual identity, but just you know there's uh, sexualness and understanding and, and compassion and for you know for for our brothers and sisters. In that community, especially parents, I think this is a, a this is an easy to take pill for for parents to maybe you know understand what their daughter or son are, are going through. They may have you know some suspicion, or they may be completely blind, like you know, like mosquito uh, mom is, and dad, mom and dad, they're completely blind about what the hell's going on. I think this is a good primer for a, a teenage who's coming out to be able to kind of like show the film for them. And then, you know, maybe somewhere down the line, the process of coming out is going to be a lot easier. Um, I saw this film on Prime. I saw this film on, on Prime Video. And uh, of course, I supported Aurora. And I, I paid my $3.99 for the film. But um, it's not a film that you know. I was just recently. I was at the swap meet, and they have the 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 twenty five cent, fifty cent DVDs. You know, tables we got thousands of, of DVDs out there.
1: I didn't see it, and I I
0: think I'd I'd like to see it in places like that. You know,
1: it's on Canopy. It's on Canopy. You could can get it for free from your public library if your public library subscribes to Canopy. You can get it from there. Okay, great source. I didn't know that. Well, but
0: yeah. hey. I just gave no daughter some money, so I'm cool with that. I got no problem with that. So I support stuff like that. I support that. Now we're we're gonna go over and we're gonna do our classic film, which and another film too that I was very familiar with. <laughs> not not and not in the sense that that I was not in a sense that I had seen the film. But when I was a performance artist, when I was a, a very active performance artist, on many occasions, whenever um, my group and myself would perform, we w- we would project this film behind us, and so, but we always had the the volume turned down, and the reason I the reason I did that is because I, it's just, the cinematography. So Maria Candelaria was made. In 1944, um, and it's a story about uh, an indigenous woman in Sochiomilko in 1909, just like a year before the revolution. And it, it's a story of um, this very beautiful indigenous woman who has a, a life; her life has been has been scorned by the community because of her mother being kind of like, uh, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if that's really, is that clearly stated that her mother was a sex worker or?
1: Yeah, her Whatever her mother did, it's not clearly stated, but her mother injured the community in some way. And Maria Candelaria is paying the price for her mother's sins.
0: Yeah, so exactly. So, um, but the thing about this film though, is that? Um, I mean, the the the. When, once I started finding out about the film, it just took me down this really rabbit hole. I just appreciate. I'm just appreciating the film more and more and more. I mean, the first thing that drew me to it was the cinematography, and uh, that's by the cinematography for this particular film was was uh, led by this guy named Mauricio um, Magdaleno. And if anyone knows anything about the, the, the golden age of, of Mexican cinema, uh, Magdaleno is like, he's one of the, the superstars. He eventually becomes a director and he puts out a series of all these great movies. In fact, it's with, um, who is the, the star that he's he's really connected with in his movies? It's not it's not the, um, Del Rio, it's not Dolores Del Rio. It is... Who's the other? Or Magdalena? No, 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 no. The other Mexican star that... that... Pedro Arbenzaris. No, no, no. The female. She's a female Mexican star. Maria Felix. Maria Felix. Yeah, he's associated a lot with the Maria Felix uh, films of, the, of that period. So his cinematography inside this film, it makes it a completely beautiful film. In fact, at, at some points, I felt that I you know, almost forgot that it was a black and white film. Especially the way that that they that they're depicting um, the sky, and also just the Sochi that area, the floating gardens there, and it's it's, beautiful. Beautiful. it's it's beautiful because, like I said, when they shot they shot this film in '44, this is probably really like one of the the, the last times that that area Sochi is pristine, because since then. I mean, it's almost like, you know, it's almost like going to a state line or, or a river, people ski or people water skiing. I mean, people partying on that, on that, on that lake now, nowadays, but this is kind of like, you know, this, this kind of, he captures, they capture the, the, that uh, environment,
1: you know, beautifully. Yeah. I, I couldn't really tell if it was, um. Uh, a set or if it was the actual chinampas in Xochimilco and because I was just kind of the, the depth between them or very fluid and I, I, I was like is this a set or what is this I couldn't I couldn't figure that out but I guess I mean he won best cinematographer at uh, I think at Cannes or something like that
0: yeah in fact w- what happened was that Cannes was uh Cannes was um was uh, stopped for for quite a few years because of the war and then when they okay. uh, when they resurrected it again in 46, this was one of the films that was recognized. It, it affected it and 10 other films received the, the Balm de Oro, which is one of the top prizes there at, at, uh, at Cannes. But the film was like, you know, it, like I said, it came out two years before. And in my in in my um, research, I found out, yeah, that it was that they they, they did shoot this uh, film on site. And so even like there's a presence of all the indigenous people inside there. So all the, all, like all the costuming, all the people, all the, the, the flora and fauna is authentic. It's authentic. And um, so we, inside the story, we find, you know, Maria Candelaria, she's, you know, she's like stuck in the city and she's not, you know, excuse me, she's stuck in this, in this village and it's, it's, by her cho- it's her choice. I mean, she's not really trying to escape or anything. She's just trying to feel comfortable. She's just trying to live her life without having to be bashed. The fact that they should name this movie uh, The Haters of, of Maria Candelaria because it's like the whole village is out to, to, to really get her. Um, and then eventually, you know, she becomes sick and, and her... I don't even know if it's her boyfriend. <laughs> I mean, it's like this, you know, Pedro Am- Amadas' character, Lorenzo Rafael, he kind of like, stand, he's the only person inside the whole village who's standing up for her. But in the process, uh, a painter, uh, uh, she meets a painter who's kind of like, just like painting inside the area. In fact, that's how the movie starts off. And he he's telling the story of this, this painting of Maria Candelaria, this nude painting of Maria Candelaria. But for him, it brings great pain. Uh, And then he tells the story and that's how the the movie opens up. But the director of photography, is this cat by the name of Gabriel Figueroa. The music is done by Francisco Dominguez and the editing, which also got recognized at cons too, is by a woman by the name of Gloria uh, Schumann. And along with the director, Emilio Fernandez, these these five people are almost solely responsible for that branding of that that era of mexican cinema being referred to as the the, the, the golden era the the epoch de oro, de oro so it's this is one of their their earliest films that they do that i mean after the after this movie wins these prizes at cons then you know historians when they look back this is like the first film that really kind of marks this golden period the 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 resurrect or the uh, emergence of this golden mexican cinema and so um, yeah these are people when whatever this start in 5 or or on a film phew, that film is killing in fact, uh, like I said, some of them, they kind of switch up sometimes. Uh, Emilio Fer- Fernandez you know, just writes the film or he may be the cinematographer or the director of photography, but everyone kind of like, everyone's multiple. They're all players, they're all team players. So they, they play in this position that, 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 they, that they want. Um, one thing that, that, that I do, because I think this all sets up, uh, it helps us set up and understand um, the director's frame of mind it was at the time Marlene Dietrich, Dietrich, she said that uh, Dolores, um, Dolores Del Rio, was the most beautiful woman who ever stepped into Hollywood. Dolores Del Rio started her her career, her film career in Hollywood, in silent films, and then eventually, um, when silent films kind of ends, she tries to make a stab at you know making films in, in Hollywood with speaking things and it just doesn't turn out right for her. So she jets back to um, to Mexico. And when she's in Mexico, she becomes, you know, this, the, the big movie star inside uh, Mexico. And then eventually later on in life, probably like after the, the fifties or maybe the sixties, she comes back to uh, America, to the United States where she winds up, you know, being some somewhat successful, Inside uh, movies, she she appears in a lot of TV shows and stuff like that. So it's she's like this. She's a Chicana, she is a Chicana, and she's living on both sides of the border, and she's producing a work on both sides of the border. And so it's it's an interesting context that yeah. uh, to see her life and how it appears during this time of the filming. um Kind of post-war. I'm gonna I'm
1: gonna, I'm gonna interrupt you real quick too. Go I, ahead. I just Go want ahead. To... Pedro Armendariz at this time is also having this kind of a binational existence too. Uh, I know he, I, I said there was a Bay Area connection, but I, I don't, right now I can't confirm that, but looking over my notes. I was just trying to confirm that it was Bay Area, but he is educated in the United States. He's educated at uh, Polytechnic of San Luis Obispo where he earns an engineering degree. He gets a, a law degree too from one of the UC campuses. It has to be UC Berkeley or UCLA. <clears throat> but I can't confirm which one at this point. So maybe there isn't a Bay Area connection. But just, you know, on that note, too, I mean, we do see this kind of um, binational existence between um, Hollywood and Mexico at this time. They're going back and forth. Um, Mario Moreno's going. Um, they're well aware of each other. So anyway, I just want I just needed to jump in and say that, too.
0: Yeah, in fact, there's bars. There's bars in LA where they, you know, were cantiflas and tintan drank and stuff. And those, those bars still exist. Have yeah, we been to one? <laughs> yeah. And but the, the the interesting thing about this is that we see, I mean, if you study the, the the early roots of of Hollywood history, you realize that there's a lot of Mexicanos inside the industry. Um, a lot of them are just are picking up, you know, menial jobs, you know, on the crew. They're not like exalted in, in being these, you know, uh, exalted places as producers or directors or whatever, but they're employed within the industry. And that's just because Hollywood at that time in the forties is not as populated as it is now. And there's still a very strong Mexican presence inside of Hollywood. So of course, you know, all the, some of the low paying jobs inside the studios are you can go to Mexicanos who are around, but someone like Emilio Fernandez, who did that exactly, I mean, he was. Um, he left. He left the, uh, Mexico uh, because of the, the the violence of the revolution. He was born like in 1904 or something like that. But he left, and then he winds up in the United States, and he winds up inside uh, filmmaking in, in Hollywood, and he learns the, the the trade. Interesting story about this film. <laughs> I think we're talking more about the history of the film than the film itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but the interesting thing about this this film is that. At the time, he, he's, it's a, he has a very well-known crush. He's in love with Dolores Del Rio. But she's always with someone else. So they're never romantically linked. But they have this very strong, strong friendship that that goes uh, w- between them. And at one point, Fernandez is like broke. And he's drinking at some Hollywood bar. And he, he writes out the story of Maria Candelaria he kind of storyboards it on bar napkins. I think it's about, it's about 20 bar, 20 or 30 bar napkins. And he delivers these napkins to Dolores Del Rio. Almost like in in a fit, you know, it's it's both a gift to her, but he's, he's, I think he's, it's a jealous rage because she probably had an opening in her social schedule that he was unable to get into, (laughs) if you understand. And so, he throws it, he goes, this is my gift to you. This is my story to you. He's broke as fuck, so he has no ability to make a film. But because of his connections, he eventually you know, draws up enough interest to, to make this film. So when understanding that, you kind of have to figure, who's he talking about in the character Maria Candelaria? Is, is that is he trying to tell the story of Dolores da Rio actually inside you don't so that that kind of connection inside there is is really interesting because the lorenzo rafael pedro Amadares' character like i said there's there's no sexual tension between them there's yeah. no touching between them
1: but he so let's jump her. into it jump, jump into it what what is the story about maria candelaria well she ain't got she ain't got jack. She ain't got nothing.
0: All she has pretty much is a pig and yeah. a flower garden. So yeah. um the once again, we talk about the um the store the store keeps. In this case it's it's Don Damion. And she owes him money. Or yeah, she owes him money. I I think at that point. I mean he's very specific. He's like 15 pesos and, and eight centavos or eighty centavos. So he's very specific. I mean, if we think about fifteen pesos today, I mean that's the same jack, but probably back then, you know, it's probably well over a hundred dollars. what we think about, maybe maybe about two hundred dollars, maybe even three hundred dollars or so. But you know, that'd be like I don't know if it's gonna be that much. But the thing is, is that he has a thing for her. He he's a fucking, he's a he's a pig. He's a fucking chauvinist pig. He's slapping ladies in the butt and everything, and but he can't get her. And the thing is, is that it wouldn't be beneficial for him to get her either because she is like totally scorned by the community. So he has all these things that are keeping him away from her. But the only thing that keeps him connected to Maria Candelari is his debt, and he tries to use that debt, whatever way he can, to get to get at her to make some type of connection with her because his his dumb ass is unable to do it any other way he can't do it romantically because he's all about money so like i said all she has is her flowers and her her pig and the pig becomes this you know big old you know metaphor or you know it's used as a a, a trope to to carry the story through and so um so as she's, you know, as she's trying to figure out a way. She she offers him like, hey, you know, I can give you flowers and, and vegetables from my garden to pay the debt. He's like, no, no, he's like, he wants cash, you know. And she can't, she doesn't have cash because she's a flower seller. And so when she goes out to to make her sales of flowers, and they're beautifully, beautifully, I mean, it's in this boat that she rows herself, and it's filled with flowers. I mean, those scenes, like, oh my yeah. god.
1: You know? even 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 a bad print you know even the bad prints that exist right now um still demonstrate the the beauty of like seeing those flowers on it that's what I was surprised about it because i i was like this is just you know it's not a clean digital print they're they're broken up and it was still gorgeous to see yeah. so I, there there's uh, you know, like the cinematography is definitely worth it just to watch it. Turn turn down the volume, like you said. It was a backdrop in a lot of performances. Yeah.
0: So, so when she when she tries to go to the pulga and sell her flowers, the the whole they block her way. They said nope, can't gotta get out of here, get the fuck out of here. And so hmm. she can't generate funds. All she has is the stuff that she's working on, and the thing that she loves is her little pig. You know, she yeah. has that little pig, and that's the thing that you know he's kind of like you know don damian he 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 threatens her he goes if you don't pay i'm gonna take your pig (laughs) and and so she's like you know for her that's a nightmare but then eventually you know as we see how the pig you know goes goes down you know it becomes an important part of the of the movie but um yeah so eventually the the painter Um, is able to to capture Maria Candelaria in a setting in in a to get her to paint. The problem is, is that he paints her face, which is great because you know, like Marlena Dietrich said, she's probably the one of the most beautiful women ever to set foot in Hollywood. But he wants it, he wants more, he wants to see her nude, he wants to paint her nude, and she refuses. And so what he does is he he paints another woman's body onto the, onto the painting, but keeps Maria Candelaria's face in there. So eventually when the the painting becomes public, once again, I mean, the, the, whatever history that this village had with the embarrassment that her mother provided here, Maria Candelaria just like it's perceived that she just like stacks it up on top of it. She just exponentially blows it up because she posed nude. You know, she's this indigenous woman from Xochimilco that posed nude for this film. More shame to the community. But it's not true. That's why I imagine whatever happened with her mom was not true either.
1: Because of their lives are parallel. You know, watching this, um, I've seen, I saw this, I probably saw it more than 20 years ago, my initial one. If I haven't seen it since then, it's always played on my mind, but I remember remember my initial feelings was that I was into it. I didn't really have much of a criticism of it and thinking about it. um, You know, I was into kind of like the indigenous aspect, especially the the Chinampas and just kind of the whole story. But on second viewing it, there was just so much, you know, so much more stuff going on, especially in terms of, like the painter. Um, you know, why the painter wants to paint her because he represents Mexico, right? She represents Mexican women, and at the same time, too, understanding I mean, there's two things that we understand is, um, you know, Mexican pastoral, just remembering that all the things that were good and beautiful, um about it i mean mexicans are very capable of that too but and then you know on the second viewing i'm thinking well no still you know 2020 doesn't really change the fact that mexicans really don't find beauty in indigenous things i was especially thinking of like yalitza aparicio in, in roma the way that kind of the mexican media kind of turned on her and said why is she a representation of mexico so i mean there was there was stuff like that that was going on and kind of this side i romanticization of on like what the painter's doing. On the other hand, I do see the kind of like the contrast of the internal turmoil that's going on in this community. And it's happening and especially, and then, you know, the whole idea of beauty. Yes, the Lotus Del Rio is beautiful, but I remember beautiful in terms of Mestiza. I mean, she's not a representation of indigenous woman. And so mm-hmm. it just got me thinking about this time frame, the golden age of Mexico, where they're coming from in this whole, um, reclaiming of Mexican identity of course we have that that painter has to be based on Diego Rivera right capturing these things going in and painting these people but you know a lot of it is romantic romanticization in terms of you know of where they think they've came from this idea of what Mexican means to be at this time which I was I on second view and I had more problems than I did the first time. The first time I think I accepted a lot of these things. The second time I was just like, I don't know if I could accept these things. Yeah. Well, you know,
0: um, Emilio Fernandez, the director, he he was known as Alindio. Uh-huh. He he was you know he he was uh, of indigenous you know descent. Um, uh-huh. But he's the one who carried that flag. He he was he was probably the first prominent Mexican director to really carry that flag. It was like we're gonna represent the Dijina, you know, through uh-huh. through film. Um, he was also just a badass, too, because eventually he became a, a general in the Mexican Revolutionary Army, and so yeah. he was physically-I mean, he was a soldier, he was like fucking strong ass dude, so people like were like afraid of him. So for him, which is like you know, it's that's synonymous with you know those being afraid of the the indigenous in the Mexican Revolution, because that's who the revolution was supposed to be about. But then eventually gets co-opted. But the thing is that he's the one who who is uh, um, he's the one who who decides to, to to carry that banner. And the story, I mean, it's a, it's a good pickup. You, you talked about how the pen the painter was probably based on diego Rivetta, which i see completely in fact diego Rivetta did a dolores del rio a painting a beautiful painting. Oh, wow. beautiful painting by the way the, the the one that's funny is is uh, uh orozco's orozco's um, painting of dolores del rio which she commissioned him to do but the thing was he was going blind at the time so his painting wasn't all like it was traditionally was. So if you if you look at that the image of that that painting, it's it's pretty funny. And Dolores Dowood she hated that that picture. She hated that painting of her. But yeah, this whole thing about because she's different. She she looks different. She looks different than all the indigenous people inside the film. And maybe that's maybe that's what happened with her her mom. Is or maybe her mom got together with you know Cortez and you know then boom Maria Candelaria was born.
1: So that could be it too, right? I mean, yeah. Maria Candelaria's uh, Mestiza, right? And uh, this still doesn't explain, um it still doesn't add, give credibility to the painter's position because he's been waiting, well, what we find out is that if that is true, then he's been waiting for the Mestiza, not for the indigenous, right? Yeah. The Mestiza is representation of beauty in Mexico and not necessarily all the indigenous that uh, are there. Yeah, Yeah. Um, so I but mean, it's, yeah. Go I ahead. Can see yeah. both flags. Yeah, yeah.
0: There, there's a there's a lot of I mean, there's a lot to unpack as far as the the the, the imagery and the depiction of of the indigenous of Mexico inside this film, and and just the history of of their their portrayal in Mexican media in general.
1: Yeah,
0: I mean, it's it's a good connection that you made with Roma. Mm-hmm. You know, and finally, you know, she the the the, the one what's the, the actress
1: name for Roma. Yalitza Aparacio
0: She finally got her second job. She finally got just recently, just like last week, she got selected for another movie. Which is it's it's incredible. Uh But um yeah, you know, as far as like exploring the topic of the golden age of Mexican film,
1: yeah,
0: this is definitely like one of the earliest markings of it and so yeah. this is a, this is a film that you know if you if you're a film student then you've probably already seen it i mean this is probably like just the top 100 movies but if you haven't this is a good starting point just, just.
1: it also has one of the more famous uh golden age of mexico's villains in miguel Inclan, who played uh don damian he also plays another great villain in cuando los hijos so yeah um i mean these guys i mean like like you already said the whole crew is well established these actors are all very well established yeah
0: it's it's interesting um dolores darrio has this very open competition going on with uh, lupe velez Uh throughout her career Um, they never really acknowledge each other Uh, they, they throw shade at each other all the time and who's the character's name inside this you know that throws that throws maria candelaria shade all the time Lupe. lupe (laughs) like i'm saying this is like this is a story i mean this guy wrote this story he was obsessed with dolores del rio so he was basically kind of like telling her story you know in it so it's it's you know it's interesting it's a it's a good film highly recommend
1: well Um, the the, the other thing i want to point out too um is just you know like we like we all want to understand that they're giving them um um you would think that they're trying to give the indigenous a platform to kind of speak. At this, you know, and the only problem I had on that one is this use of the word criatura. That's uh, that's being referred to Maria Candelaria both by the priest and by the by the painter is referred to as criatura, which could it's a very kind of um, it, it means creature on the one hand, but it's also a way you can refer to children. So uh I, I i was i was thinking about that like i don't know how much you want to use this as a reputation of giving somebody a you know indigenous platform of course she's being oppressed but in the people that even are trying to help her are also objecting to find her by calling her criatura, by child which mm-hmm. i wasn't really all that into too so anyway i, I just wanted to point that out
0: yeah well my pochismo kicked in so i didn't Those little type of subtleties I didn't catch. (laughs) But yeah, Uh, once again, no no nudity. It's 1944, but this is a pre-code film too. So, you know, there could have been, but um, yeah. Maria Candelaria, directed by Emilio Fernandez and starring Dolores Del Rio. Cool. That's gonna do it for. I mean, I think we're done. That's gonna do it for this uh, inaugural issue on during Women's Month, International Women's Month on, of at the Canton. Just like uh, two Chicano dudes checking out some films and talking about it. Hopefully you enjoy it, and if you uh, if you did, uh, stay tuned. We're gonna have another episode. Get the subscribe button. Hit <laughs> the subscribe button. There we go. And uh, stay tuned and. and That's gonna do it, and um, we'll announce what which films we're gonna do next soon. All right, thank you. Later,
1: everybody.